0: I'm going to talk about the theme of mindfulness practice and what's called papancha. P-A-P-A-N-C-A. Papancha. It sounds like a tropical fruit. (laughs) And even though it refers to what we, the the translation, I'll say the translation is usually, uh, one translation is conceptual proliferation. Another is mental proliferation. It refers to the tendency for our minds to basically get lost a lot. To go off on a trail of associations, connections, wonderings, um, delusional thinking at times. Uh, And to really go off and more or less get lost and really not know whether that thinking is helpful or not helpful. So an example, and I think it's actually quite familiar, an example might be, we may, we might have been sitting here this evening, and maybe halfway through the sitting we found, you know, I'm kind of sleepy. And then the Vapancha train begins. I'm kind of sleepy. Maybe I shouldn't have come tonight. Yeah, I should have come on Sunday. I shouldn't come during the week. I should come on Sunday. Oh, but it's so early on Sunday. I need. I really like my rest on Sunday. But or maybe I'm just not a good meditator. Why have I been doing all this meditation? Where does it get me? It just ends me up in sleep. And and but yeah, I'll just come on Sunday. And I'm. I'm not going to think about whether I'm a good meditator. And I'm going to reward myself for being here by going out and having something to eat afterwards. Maybe I'll go right after the meditation. I wonder if this speaker is any good. I'll just sneak a peek. Well, I like his shirt. So, so, is is that familiar not that anyone did exact that train, but it's that tendency of the mind just to go off and, you know, have lunch or whatever, have a romantic connection to someone else, you know, somewhere on the other side of the hall and take that for a spin and, you know. Uh, so I want to talk about first a little bit about mindfulness and then some about Papancha and the process of how it works and then some about how we work with it. And those of you who are interested in, in doing some sustained work with Papancha, uh, you know, if you do it in the next days and come back and during the time on Sunday, we can maybe talk about it, although I'll probably talk about something else on Sunday. Unless I get too involved in Papancha myself. Thank you about the topic. Uh, so first a few words about mindfulness, uh, because it's helpful to remember this core practice that we do here because mindfulness is this wonderful tool that helps us to work with Papancha, with getting lost in thinking and helps us really to know the process of thinking and be able to use our thinking in a more uh, fruitful way because the aim is really not to get rid of thinking, but it's to think more wisely and often less. Often less. You know, when I was first meditating, I tended to plan a lot. I come from a family of uh, planners. Often we, you know, when the family would get together sometimes, we would just sit there and plan when we're going to get together next. (laughs) You know. Uh, And we enjoyed it. It's like we just want to get together to plan when we get together. I mean, it has a certain irony to it, but it's um, and my sister got an advanced degree in planning. (laughs) (laughs) And She does. She gets paid now for planning. She works with Kaiser. (laughs) So when I was first meditating, I would just plan a lot and I didn't really know it. And I would just sit there. You know, like was a student, I would just plan like for a report that I was going to do in a few days and sit and plan. When I meditated, I was astounded to see how much I was thinking. If someone had asked me, do you think a lot? Do you plan a lot before I started meditating? I probably would have said, not particularly. But when I actually saw it, there was an enormous amount of planning. And part of the fruit of working with mindfulness was number one, that I saw it. And then on the basis of that, I could, uh, choose to um, not feed it so much, not follow it so much. And so I came to uh, plan less. And planning is an important function, so I still think I plan generally well, but I plan a lot less. And it's a lot less compulsive. And I could also see, maybe as I went more deeply in my meditation, I could see that there were some roots of that kind of compulsive planning and anxiety, or it was like a strategy to make me secure, right, I just, if I just plan 90% of my waking life. I'll avoid danger. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but um, and so with mindfulness, we have this tool to work wisely with the, this, these tendencies to repetitive thoughts. So if just a few words further about mindfulness. I thought I'd read a uh, passage from one of the ancient texts, and then I think maybe a, a modern text. This is from One of the texts of the Abhidhamma, which is one of the uh, past, one of the uh, series of texts written after the Buddha, but probably from 1500 to 2000 years ago. This is about mindfulness. Mindfulness signifies presence of mind, attentiveness to the present. It has the characteristic of not wobbling. That is not floating away from the object. Its function is absence of confusion or non-forgetfulness. It is manifested as guardianship or the state of confronting an objective field. So that suggests some of the qualities of mindfulness, which are going to be very valuable for working with thought. One is that it has a quality of directness. With mindfulness, we, we learn how to be directly with our experience. We can be with the... Sensation, we can notice the thought, we can be with an emotion. And one of the key uh, distinctions that we learn in cultivating mindfulness is we learn the distinction between a more direct experience and our interpretation of experience. Or what we do with the experience conceptually. And that's going to be, that's a very pivotal distinction for working with Papancha and the tendency of the mind to spin off. Because often we have trouble being with the direct experience, and we tend to spin off in all sorts of directions. And so, a large part of the training, that large part of what we maybe just did in, in the 45-minute sitting, is learning how to be more directly with experience. And particularly, we learn how to be with experience that may have the quality of being unpleasant or pleasant, because typically. With pleasant experience we tend to want we don't experience it directly, we just grab hold of it. We try to grab hold of it. And with unpleasant experience we tend to push it away. So if I have a a pain in my knee when I'm sitting here, I may not unless I'm trained well, I may not really sit with it. I may just think, how am I gonna get rid of it? How long is the sitting gonna go? And so on. Or when I have a difficult emotion, I may do the same. So a large part of the training is to be really uh, very direct with experience. Uh, that's not to say that we sit endlessly with a knee pain to the point that it causes damage, but sometimes we have certain pains which are unavoidable, and we train to be able to be with direct experience and know when we're moving away from that direct experience. It's really probably at the heart of the training that we do here. Mindfulness also has the... Quality or the property of being able to be in a sustained way with whatever we're paying attention to. So that was in, in the passage. It was the quality of uh, that was translated somehow as not wobbling. Wobbling is an ancient Buddhist technical term. And, and we, but we learn how to be with an object and stay with it to really stick with the object rather than just. Go off here and there, and that's partly from the function of concentration. So we, it's partly when, in our training, we learn how to stay with an object. We also learn how to be with whatever's happening increasingly without reactivity. That is, being able to be present just to notice what's happening and watch the tendencies of the mind to be uh, reactive. And that translates into be learning better. And again, part of the training. We really can see ourselves here As undergoing a training, we really train in developing a kind of presence that's non-judgmental. And if we're judgmental, we notice that non-judgmentally. We notice the, we notice the tendencies of mind. And we learn how to be with it without, uh, so much pushing things away or trying to grab hold of them, trying to change things. A fourth aspect of mindfulness is that we have certain degree of warmth. I think a mature mindfulness also has some compassion or warmth. And I love the, uh, Chinese, uh, character for mindfulness, which I actually learned this from, from Gil, you know, who teaches here, that the Chinese character for mindfulness is a composite. Part of it is present moment. And the other part is uh, two characters brought together. One signifies heart, and the other signifies uh, home. And so mindfulness is finding a home for our heart in the present moment, which I love. And it really conveys that quality of warmth and the quality of being able to, in a way, rest in awareness, rest in presence, and take it increasingly as something we can trust and find refuge in. And the last quality of mindfulness I want to mention is that from the many moments of mindfulness, we increasingly can act wisely. That I could notice how I was um, doing all that planning. And I could come to the blazing insight that I don't need to plan so much. <laughs> you know, I think Kierkegaard had a phrase once, this blazing insight into the totally obvious. <laughs> Which is a bit this is what this is what successful meditation leads to. <laughs> uh, you can write that on your refrigerator or something. Um, so this is this is the core tool that we use, and we use it to see how mindfulness how papancha works. And when we look more closely at our minds, we can see, begin to see this tendency towards co- conceptual proliferation. So I want to talk a little bit about that. In the uh, Buddhist psychology, there's one model which if, probably if you've been here coming to a lot of talks, you've probably heard Gil talk about, which is a model called dependent arising. It's probably the most detailed map of, of the roots of suffering. And the Buddha actually did not give really detailed maps. He was very pragmatic, as you know, and really gave. So this is this is uh, the most complicated, but it's actually still pretty simple. I want to give a very simplified version of it. It's basically a model of what we bring to experience, what happens in experience, and the consequences of our experience. I want to mostly talk about the second, but I'll say a few words about the first and third. The Buddha said that we basically bring to experience both some universal human uh, qualities or aspects and some aspects that are more individual or personal. The universal aspects are the quality of consciousness, the fact of having a body, the way the mind works, and so forth, and these are they some they're it's analyzed in some detail by later tradition, but it basically relates to qualities of attention, perception, uh, the working of the senses, and so forth. And th- these are all more or less neutral, universal qualities. We also bring to experience uh, what the Buddha talked about as both certain ignorance that we have. And a certain kind of habit energy. This would be similar in some ways to what western psychologists would call the unconscious. In other words, we all bring to experience things, you know, we bring the, in a sense we bring our history. When the Buddha talked about ignorance, he was particularly focusing on the tendency to think of ourselves as separate selves, cut off from other people, uh, the underlying assumption that the way to happiness is to accumulate pleasant experiences as opposed to cultivating wisdom. And there was also this kind of habit energy, which uh, the Buddha thought about as going over different lies, but we can think about it in, in very conventional Western terms. It's the The sense that we all, on the basis of past experiences, bring certain habits, certain tendencies to our present experience. You know, so for example, if I as a child, uh, had some issues of sometimes feeling like I was abandoned by my parents, you know, or wasn't sure that my parents were always there, when I get into an intimate personal relationship and my partner wants to go away for the weekend, I'm going to freak out a little bit I'm going to get a little bit scared because I have this history, and I tend to interpret someone leaving as a danger sign you know, and we all have some version of that, right We all have some wounds, some difficulties that lead us to interpret things in certain ways, you know, or it might be just a certain history of a certain person, you know, like I was thinking of um um a few days ago, there was a telephone call or I, I heard um, a message and I I didn't, I didn't, I got it late at night. I didn't want to listen to messages, but I just pressed the machine and I thought I heard something from someone who I thought was someone who I had had a little bit of tension with. And I, and I, and I, my, I found my mind going, well, I don't want to hear that. And she's probably saying this and, and this. And I kind of went on for a bit. This is called, this is actually Papancha. And. And then the next day, I found out that uh, when I actually played the whole message, it actually wasn't her. <laughs> it was someone else. But I had just there's some similarity of the voice. This is we're actually kind of getting into papancha. But you see, because of that tendency, or because of the history, and I think we all know this, right? We all do this all the time. Because of that history, I was tending to interpret that in a certain way, and actually, I was actually deluded in my perception. So we all bring certain things to experience. Um, You know, there was a cartoon I remember from a number of years ago where where um, it shows two people on a date. And they each, they're meeting, and they each have behind them this huge bag. (laughs) That's like two or three times as big as they are. It's like, you know, the idea was like, here are the people and their baggage. (laughs) Right, you know, so like... Like when you meet someone, you go on a date, you don't just meet the simple person, you meet the person's history. You know, you know, uh, and in the cartoon, it was portrayed as baggage. So there's this uh, tendency to have our experience, we might say, in tr- um, influenced by the past, influenced by certain tendencies and also influenced by an underlying kind of ignorance. Uh, not ignorance of facts, but a kind of spiritual ignorance. And so, on that basis, we all encounter whatever we encounter. We encounter trees and people and so forth. And what we typically do in in this Buddhist psychology, what I just described is what we bring to experience, and then what we actually experience in the moment is that we experience typically in this psychology, there's the moment of contact there's the moment of contact with an object, so I, I, I see this rug, I see you, you know I hear something, I hear the bell. That's all I'm encounter. There's contact. And then on the basis of contact, there's typically a moment of it being pleasant or unpleasant. And in the Buddhist psychology, it said that every moment is either pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. And then, uh, on the basis of that, If I, to the extent that I'm ignorant and not mindful, I will tend to try to grab hold of the pleasant. I'll try to tend to push away the unpleasant. And the Buddha basically said that when we do this, the consequences of that kind of experience is that we basically reinforce the habit energy. When we act without mindfulness, we just keep, the, as it were, the habits going. We could go into more detail on that. So where does Papancha come in? Papancha comes in more or less at the point of contact. When we have a certain experience and it has a certain sense of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, our minds tend to get working. Just like when I heard that just a few moments of the telephone message, I just went somewhere with it, right? Uh, so I'll give a few examples, and they, they probably are quite familiar. It could just be the experience, my, I experienced feeling sleepy as in my earlier example, and I just go many places with it. So here's here's some other examples. Um, so I'm I'm driving one time I was driving from Spirit Rock back home and I was going uh on the Richmond Bridge from San Rafael to, towards Richmond uh at a time when there was a lot of bridge uh bridge construction. And so on this particular day, there was complete gridlock. That's an experience that rarely happens, probably around here. But um, anyway, I experienced it, unpleasant. And my mind started going. My mind particularly started going when I noticed I was just stopped in my lane, and in the breakdown lane, cars started speeding by. I started saying, "They're pretty selfish." Yeah, our society is just getting more and more selfish. Yeah, there's a moral crisis. (laughs) And just kind of went off like that in a few different directions. And then later when the traffic eased, I noticed that one of the cars which had sped by was actually assisting someone who had broken down. So sometimes we get checks on our papancha, you know, sometimes. So it's, but anyway, my mind was just going off. In that case, very much um, catalyzed by the fact that it was unpleasant, right? It was something unpleasant that just kept on going. Another example, this I heard from my mentor, uh, Sylvia Vorstein. She wanted to do a retreat at the Zen Center in San Francisco. And so she called up the uh, Zen office and she asked to talk with the person who was responsible for arranging retreats. And she was told that this was Bill, but he wasn't around. And so she left a message. Later, Bill called her, but she wasn't home. So he left a message. So then she decided to try to call Bill again, and called him, and she reached Susan, who was, uh, on the switchboard, and she said, I'm sorry, uh, Bill's not here, And then Sylvia said, I guess this means that I'm not supposed to do the retreat. At which point Susan said, no, I think it means that Bill's not here. (laughs) (laughs) So you see, Sylvia, who is a teacher of mindfulness, was being taught basic mindfulness and the distinction between direct experience and interpretation, you see, by, by Susan. And so that's, that's something That we do a lot, you know. That we get off, we get, we get off in in various kinds of delusion, you know. um, Or actually, another experience that I heard from Jack Cornfield was, you know, a few years ago, there was a man who died very suddenly, and his wife was really in grief and kind of shock, and he, um, some of her friends, started talking with her. And they started saying, I was meditating this morning, and I saw your husband, and it's all okay. He's in heaven. And another person the next day came and said, I had a vision of your husband, and he's going through a hard time, but he'll be okay. And she had like three or four of these people who claimed with a certain degree of certainty to represent things. And actually, Jack worked with her by saying, what do you really know in your direct experience, and what goes what goes beyond that? And so this is this is um, this is really the invitation to look at how we proliferate, to look at how our minds work, to look at our patterns. There's a there's a passage. Let me read a one or two passages I wanted to read read, read to you. Let's see. This is a description of Papancha. What one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about, one complicates. With associations, memories, and ideas. And then these notions assail and overwhelm the person. What one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about, one complicates. So how to work with Papancha. The first thing to say is that... um, This doesn't mean that thinking is simply a problem, that we should get rid of thinking. There's a value in reflection. There's a value in thinking clearly. The aim of our practice is really to bring mindfulness to the whole process so we can see what is wise or helpful thinking and what is uh, thinking that's just going around in circles or working with a lot of repetition over and over again. I think there was a Stanford University study that showed that 93% of our thoughts... Are not new
1: <laughs>
0: They're just repeated. Uh, and so how to, how to work with them? So the first, the first um, tool is really just to be mindful is to in meditation, it means actually when we notice ourselves kind of going off, just to notice those patterns, and just to notice the thinking and then come back, because it's actually very, very crucial to be able to notice and and train ourselves to stay more with the direct experience. And so, in particular, we can become more familiar with our own particular patterns. Some of you may use the technique of using labels with particular patterns of thought. And so, when you're sitting there, it's something that I've often done, uh, I'm sitting there and a discussion with a particular person comes up and I make a special label for it, so I notice more quickly... That I'm going into that pattern, or I notice, oh, I'm, I'm going into that one again, and I'll give it a label. Melodrama number three.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, and then uh, when it comes up again, I'll more quickly see it. So that, that would be the mindfulness. So it's becoming really familiar with our patterns and almost getting an inventory of our patterns. Really, really crucial for each of us. It's like, it's valuable sometimes to, to write down, what's your top ten list of Papancha? <laughs> your top ten papunchalist, and to become familiar with it so you can more readily see it when it arises. To keep going back as much as possible to the immediate experience. To be able to study how thoughts arise from, let's say, particularly an unpleasant or a pleasant (coughs) experience. To notice that someone says something nasty to me or what I think is nasty and my mind just goes off for three hours after that. That's papancha. And to really notice it and be able to follow it. And when we're mindful, then we're more able to say, I don't think I want to go there. That's what happens when we study our patterns in great depth. When we have looked at our top ten a hundred or a thousand times, then we can come to a conclusion. Melodrama number three takes a lot of time. It doesn't lead anywhere. And I don't think I want to go there next time. That might be a conclusion. That might be a way to act wisely. Sometimes it's very helpful with Papancha to see if we're in a particular repetitive pattern to bring the attention to the body and actually notice what's happening in my body and my heart. Because usually Papancha is being driven by something that can be underneath the surface. It can be a fear. It can be something that we're hardly aware of. It can be a sense of hurt, maybe from a comment. And when we can actually be in touch with what's underneath, we typically release the um, tendency to keep on proliferating. So if I'm, uh, you know, I've noticed sometimes when I am uh, have a difficult time in a relationship, if I can actually feel the sadness or the anger or the fear and stay with it, rather than just stay with the proliferating thoughts, I know more clearly what's happening. And they actually don't occur so long, so often. Sometimes we can use reflection and ask, is this wise to follow or not? And we can sometimes say, I don't need to go there. And then sometimes we can just choose, I really don't want to go there. You know, For example, something I sometimes do, if something has really bothered me and it's right before time to go to sleep, sometimes I just say, I am not gonna wake up in the middle of the night and think about this. And sometimes that vow or that energy can really be effective. It's like a, a a kind of almost like a part of the will to say, I don't want to go there. And it can be, can be very, very helpful. Now, I'll just mention two other tools. One tool, another tool is humor. A lot of a pancha is hilarious <laughs> when you look at it from a certain, a certain perspective. You know, it's like, um, imagine if your mind was broadcast to this whole room. <laughs> Would there be some humor in it? There'd also be some compassion maybe, but, but there'd be, there's something we can take a perspective that this from a certain perspective has some humor to it. And the last thing to mention is sometimes we find ourselves just caught in papancha. It's really helpful just to shift the situation, shift the context. If you're, you know, I mean, I think we all do this anyway, but if we're just really caught up in some thinking and we're staying at home and it's just kind of, just change the situation, go out in the woods, you know, do some exercise, take a walk, just break the momentum of the pattern can be really, really helpful. And so I'll just close by saying that this is, um, actually for most of us, this is one of the key ways that mindfulness is fruitful. When the Buddha talked about Papancha in one of the texts, he said, let's call this teaching the honeyball teaching, because the teachings about how the mind gets all activated and how it can come to more peace is very sweet. So we'll call it the honeyball teaching. Thank you. <laughs> and anyone who wants to work with those uh, guidelines and come back, we can talk on Sunday. So questions, please. We have just a few minutes. Any questions or reflections?
1: I think it's um, certainly common to have um, aversions, and aversions associated with, um, well, I'll use, for example, people. Yeah. So, uh, so if, for example, I was a conservative, I would hear the name of Nancy Pelosi, yeah. and, and I would say, oh, I don't like her, and whatever she says, I'm not going to like this, and might as well not even listen to it, because uh, anyway, that kind of... Yeah. Pancha type thing, and and we all have it, whether it's about our politics or whether it's about, um, uh, you know, this person who um, I work with or whatever. So, how? What would be um, a trick to um, intercept that uh, type of thinking and um, look at it? uh, Yeah. Look at what? Okay, so Nancy Pelosi is going to speak. I've seen games where you have these phrases and you have to attribute them to certain people. And actually, many times, the things that people actually say yeah. are not at all what you plan to be averse to. But if it comes out of the mouth of somebody that you plan to be averse to, That's right. then now you're averse to it. So how can you intercept that? Yeah.
0: Um It's mostly mostly to use some of those other tools, and it's really to study it. I mean, well, the beauty of mindfulness is that when we just pay attention, there's a natural wisdom that arises. So it's really, in a way, just bringing the spotlight to that those tendencies. And it's not that we want to eliminate all aversion, but we want to, particularly with Papancha, we want to particularly be able to notice the tendency uh, earlier on in the process. And so... It's to really study it. So if I was a conservative meditation student, and I was noticing that I was just had all this papancha about Nancy Pelosi, what what I would do is I would um, I practice a lot, and I would I would try to just notice. Oh, uh, what do I do when I? Uh, where does my mind go? Or, and I would try to study. Oh. I just see her name in the paper in the newspaper, and I just go off for ten minutes. Or, or I see I see her on TV, and I I just go off and you know make comments of irritation to my spouse or something like that. And so what I would do would be I would uh, notice that I would um, I would know that uh, the quality of being Lost in thought, even if it's lost in conservative thought, is not helpful. Uh, even if I'm lost in, uh, liberal thought, not so helpful. And so, uh, the teaching of Papancha is, uh, equal opportunity. <laughs> teaching. It's, but I would, I would try to see that, and I would try to, you know, partly, I would try to, uh, notice it, and partly I would try it, if I could, to stay with the aversion, to go back more to the direct experience and see what, what that's about. To really study it, to have some discipline when my mind was starting to take off and just come back and to then investigate what the whole process was forming the thoughts. And so I could do that whatever my political view because it's really pretty much the same. And I might find that uh, it doesn't mean that all my thinking about Nancy Pelosi is just wrong. But I can actually notice, oh, there's an insight there and there's some pain and, and I don't like Nancy Pelosi because my sister-in-law really likes her and we've had this difficult relationship and she's so self-righteously proud of Nancy Pelosi and I can't, you, know, you know, so, so I would investigate it and really see some of what the roots are and and try to go more deeply into it. And I still might choose to, you know, um, work for other views. But I would I would have investigated a lot and seen where I proliferate, see the extent of confusion in it, and um, and probably spend much less time in it. Yeah. So what is the, um, or is there a difference between Papancha and sort of creative free association? Yeah, it's, an inter- it's a great question. Um, I, I've thought about this because uh, sometimes just the mind associating can be very creative and come up with new insights, right? It can be very, very interesting. So there's a quality of Papancha in which we're uh, lost in thought. There tends to be also a quality, and this is probably crucial for, for making the distinction, there's a repetitive quality to Papancha. There's a repetitive quality, and it tends to be uh, based on that habit energy. It tends to be based on these tendencies, there's a, more of a lost quality to it. So if I'm creative, and I'm uh, kind of compulsively repeating the same insight a hundred times, that's not really creativity. But there is something about so uh, there is something about the the ability to um, just be in this place of association where you might see something really freshly and so um, I think with the the um, account of papancha, there tends to be a quality of repetition, a quality of lostness, and it tends to be linked with suffering and so It may have some of the same mechanisms as creative free association. But I think that in the long run, it's it's that repetitive quality, the habitual energy and the kind of the energy that it's serving that would distinguish Papancha from just being uh, thoughtful, creative, brainstorming and so forth. But but maybe not a complete, utter, clear distinction between them. So it's it's a really great question. So it's that repetition we want to look for. And the link between uh sort of what's the underlying motivation, what's the underlying energy, where that's going. Sometimes in creativity, it's uh it might be to really explore something or investigate. So, I wish I could take more on that. Uh, but so I could I could spend a lot more time with this all, but we're at the time and we probably have a little bit of Papancha in exploring Papancha, but, um, but I want to thank you and uh, for your attention. And let's just sit quietly for about 30 seconds or a minute to finish. And anyone who's interested in talking further, I'll, I'll stay around for a little while. So inviting any insights that may have been helpful. And any intentions that might come out of the evening about how to work with uh, Papancha. How to bring this into your own practice, your own life. And so we we finish by remembering that we do this practice not just for ourselves but for others. And may the uh, may the fruits of the evening be offered outward to others for their benefit, for their healing, and for their freedom.